Well, good morning, everybody. Please uh, grab your Bibles that are in the pews in front of you, the Black Bibles, page 1060. And don't just listen to me, but let's uh, read God's Word together. As we read Luke chapter 24, so I'm a bit loud, um, verses 13 to 35, on the road to Emmaus. Now that, oh, I should just preface this. Um, so uh, the crucif- uh, crucifixion has happened. Um, Jesus' body has been put in the tomb. On day one, the stone on the tomb has been rolled away. The tomb is empty. Uh, and the, the women who've been there uh, to take spices to, for Jesus' body have found the tomb empty. And they've gone and reported back to the eleven. On the road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see Jesus. He said to them, How foolish you are! And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven, and those with them, assembled together, and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way, and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Here ends the word. Well, good morning again. I must say, I was on a absolute high last Sunday night, and then I went to Synod. I'm not going to say too much about that. 
it just reinforced my desire to pray for revival here at St Matthews and for our city. Um, I just want us to stop and just be quiet for a moment. Uh, if I can just mention, um, we've got three prayer meetings coming up uh, as a part of this series. And a key part of the series is actually seeking God for ourselves uh, and for the church. And particularly, there's a theme each week. This Wednesday night coming is for personal needs and healing. Uh, if that is something that touches your heart, we'd love you to come along and join with us. Uh, and pray. Uh, there'll be a prayer team. Dave's going to lead some music. It should be a wonderful time, 8 o'clock this Wednesday night. But let's just be quiet now. And I want to pray that the Spirit of God really speaks to our hearts and minds as we come and think about what His Word has to say to us. So let's just be quiet and I'm going to pray for us. Father, we do thank You that You are the God who brings life. You are the God who revives the heart and the mind and the soul. And Father, I pray that today your spirit would work powerfully in our hearts so that they would burn with a sense of joy and conviction and life that comes from you, that we would know you with us here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I remember as a young man aged 20, I had an experience of God that changed my life. I'd grown up and been involved in the scouting movement for many years and there was a girl particularly in that movement uh, who I'd got to know and for most of the time I knew her, she had boyfriends. And then finally when I was age 20, she didn't have one so I thought I'll take her out on a date. And uh, I borrowed my brother's car, I paid for the movie, we went out, it was a pleasant evening. I drove back to her house in Chatswood, her name was Beth. And I remember being quite excited about the prospects of what lay ahead. I mean, I was thinking maybe a little kiss, you know, just something, a bit of romance. Anyway, she, uh, we stopped the car and she just turned and looked at me. And I thought, this is promising. She had a smile on her face. And she said, I've become a Christian, Bruce. And at that moment, I thought, that is not what I had planned. Not in the least. I'd hung around Christians enough to know that this was not a good sign in terms of uh, prospects for me. I was not a Christian. And I was kind of stunned and I said, so what happened? And for the next 45 minutes, I just got this, I wouldn't say it was a sermon, but it was just this gush of emotion about Jesus and how Jesus had changed her life. And I'd grown up in the church, I'd walked away from the church, I'd walked away from God. And at that moment, I remember thinking, this is not what I have experienced before. And what I saw in front of me was someone who had met God. I'll fast forward because you see, it stopped me in my tracks. And the preconceptions I had about God, the Christian faith, were completely turned on their head. And it led me on a journey. And my own experience was nine months later, and I looked at my diary, it was actually Monday of this week, 35 years ago, where I came to the point of realizing Jesus actually was the risen Son of God, and I gave my life to him. And it was at seven o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I prayed a little prayer that was in a booklet written by John Stott, What is a Christian? And the Spirit of God came into my life that moment, and I've never been the same. 
And we're talking today about burning hearts. And it's the reality of actually experiencing God speaking to you and changing you. And revival we saw last week uh, can be defined in a couple of different ways. Um, Sleepy Christians waking up, nominal Christians coming to faith, uh, that's spilling out in the congregation and into the community. It's a, a period where the gospel comes in power, not just in individuals, but upon communities. And in the lecture that Emily spoke about earlier and if you haven't listened to it it's on the podcast it's a great lecture on the experience of revival in Australia he gave this definition of revival very helpful revival is an intensification of the gracious work of the Holy Spirit in other words there's a regular work of the Holy Spirit that happens Uh, when revival comes it is intensified and it is felt amongst groups of people not just individuals to convict to convert to liberate to fill with joy and to commission for service Uh, it's an awakening of the people to the reality of God there is this great sense that God is with us we experience him and in two particular ways revivals historically have defined revival there's a great sense of the holiness of God and the impending reality of judgment our own sin and our need for salvation, along with the incredible wonder of his grace. That it doesn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you've done, God loves you in Christ, come as you are and find forgiveness. And so with that comes the affirming assurance that Jesus in his death and resurrection is the answer. And that's why that song, Blessed Assurance, is such a powerful song. You see, we have that sense of experience that we know. Blessed Assurance, this is my story. And with that in mind, I want us to look at a a very famous passage. It's one of my favorites. Uh, If you've got your Bibles there, do open up to page 1060. Uh, It's the passage that Trevor read for us. And I just want us to go through it, reflect on it, and then I'm going to come and ask Neville to come up and speak to us about the experiences uh, of revival in his own life amongst Indigenous people. There are many more, uh, but Neville's got his own particular story to tell. But let's look at Luke chapter 24, verse 13. Now, the same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus. And this is the Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And so we're outside of Jerusalem. You've got two of the disciples who have witnessed all the events that took place uh, with Jesus' trial, his death. Uh, They don't know yet about the resurrection and it appears, if I can say, they're walking home. Most of the disciples came from the north of Israel. They're now at Emmaus, seven miles roughly from Jerusalem. And Jesus comes and joins the journey and starts talking. And he asks them, verse 17, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And you just see this innocence, yeah, what's going on? He's playing dumb and I love it. Well, they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, well, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? No, how dumb are you? Don't you know what's going on? And he goes, what things? And he's just completely playing dumb here. What are you talking about? As if he doesn't know. Well, about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. 
In other words, they've got a pretty clear take on him. They know about his miraculous ministry, powerful word and deed, his teaching ministry. They'd also hoped that he would be the one who would be the promised Messiah who would come and redeem Israel. They also know that he spoke about the third day when he would rise again. And so they've heard him speak. They know the reality of him talking about his death and resurrection. And then, he said, then they said in verse 22, In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see Jesus. It's interesting. Uh, they go with the bloke's version, not the women's version. They should have listened to the women. <laughs> they were right. Blokes were wrong. Blokes were cynical. Well, we haven't seen him. We don't know. The women had seen the angels and they believed him. And they said he was alive. And you've got these two disciples. They're basically confused. They know of Jesus. They were hoping he would rise. It hasn't happened in their estimation, but... Something is happening. The tomb is empty. What's going on? And I love what Jesus says in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. And you get this very strong rebuke now. Like first he's playing innocent and dumb. What's going on? Now it's, well, haven't you read your Bible? Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? In other words, what have you been doing when you went to synagogue? Didn't you listen? Listen. <laughs> It's pretty obvious it's there and then beginning with Moses and all the prophets he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself in other words what we would call the Old Testament Jesus opens it up for them and says basically this book of ours is all about this person Jesus his death and his resurrection Verse 28, as they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stop, stay with us, for it's nearly evening, the day's almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And you can see the scene, dinner time's coming, they've had a wonderful time just hearing from Jesus. They're profoundly moved. And then in verse 30, it says, when he was at the table with them, he took bread and gave thanks and broke it. And so they invite him in. And Jesus obliges. And whether these words are reflecting the first communion service, we don't know. There's a similarity to the words at the Last Supper when he took bread and broke it. But what we do know is at this moment, their eyes were opened. I take it God, by his spirit, opened their eyes to understand. And they recognized him. And then he disappeared from their sight. And so the episode finishes with the lights being turned on, but the door being closed, if I can put it that way. They suddenly realise who they've been with, and then he's gone. And you get this beautiful summary in verse 32. They asked each other, and you can see them talking to each other, what just happened? Were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Well, we're thinking about experiencing God today and what you see here is this incredible experience that these two disciples have of God in the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about these words. They heard 
Jesus speak to them and their response was to say were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. There's numbers of things that this passage teaches. It really is a quite a profound passage to look at. Um, firstly, it's a very key story in the historical documents to witness the resurrection Jesus physically from the grave. Two of the disciples there, talk with him, eat with him. Now that in itself is profound because it's part of the whole tradition, if I can say, of the historical appearances of Jesus, bodily resurrected from the grave. Uh, it also teaches us how to read our Old Testaments because the Old Testament is a book with many stories, but what you see here is Jesus says it's all about one story and that every story here points to the one story, which is the story of Jesus and the gospel. And that's what you see in verse 25 to 27. Uh, if you can just have a look at those verses there. How foolish you are and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer all these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In other words, the scriptures being the Old Testament, it actually is the story about him. And when you hear the gospel explained from the scriptures, thirdly, we will hear God speaking to us. And all those things are true and more, but let's just think about why were their hearts burning? They're actually experiencing God in the flesh. And they're hearing something profound. I was thinking about this week. These are the first people to have the gospel explained to them in history, post the resurrection. And they get this private tuition to explain the gospel to them and someone came up to me after eight o'clock and said I'd love you to preach just for a whole sermon on what you thought Jesus said <laughs> and it's worth thinking about that what did he say to them well I take it what he said to them was he explained how he is the fulfillment of all of the hopes and how they can have life with God through him. And he would have explained the gospel of grace. And it's interesting, when you come to the Jerusalem Council, when you hear his brother explain about how they need the gospel and how the gospel needs to go to everyone, he talks about how the law could not justify them, but the Lord Jesus Christ, by his grace, saves them. And I take it what they heard was they were the first people to hear about Jesus' incredible love and mercy and grace to forgive sins and make people right with him, with God, through what Jesus had done on the cross and in his resurrection. And the thing to note is their hearts burned as they heard this wonderful news that they could be forgiven and accepted and that they were loved in Christ. The Christian faith is not an ideology or just rational thoughts that we think. We actually encounter the living God in the gospel and we meet a God who is holy and who will judge sin 
and is angry when people turn away from him, but in his love comes to us and sends his son to us who dies for us and rises again so that we can have new life. And these disciples were experiencing that new life as they heard the gospel explained to them. And their hearts burned within. There's nothing academic about this. This is life-changing. In the great revivals of history, they speak of Jesus not just being understood but felt. Because there is an intensification of the work of the Holy Spirit in people's hearts and minds. There is a great sense of the reality of God, both his holiness and his grace that comes to bear upon us. One of the great revivals that really, its impact has flowed all the way to Australia and to us today with Sydney Anglicans, um, started with the great evangelical awakening in England with Whitfield and Wesley. And the people who got converted as a result of that ministry of Whitfield and Wesley flows through right till today the first chaplain on the first fleet Richard Johnson was influenced by this cohort of ministers and ministry and it all began with a guy called Jonathan Wesley and um, George Whitfield and I love Wesley's conversion story he was an Anglican minister he wasn't converted he had no assurance he went to Americas uh, for ministry he met some Moravian missionaries on a boat a storm hit. He had no assurance, was afraid for his life. These Moravian missionaries who knew the Lord just prayed quietly and sang to God, not afraid that they might die. He comes back to England and they are seeking God and there's this group that used to meet. And he goes to this group and they're reading the introduction to Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. That's Martin Luther, the reformer from the 16th century. And here's what Jonathan Wesley says. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing, this is Martin Luther, the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and had saved me from the law of sin and death. And Whitfield who was with him at the time, spoke of the fact that he felt Christ. He didn't just know him in his head. He knew him in his heart. And that's what you see with these first disciples. Their hearts burn as they experience hearing the gospel. And friends, that is the reality of experiencing God. And there's lots of ways that we can experience God through answers to prayer, I know as you walk down the beachfront in the morning and see the sunrise and the majesty of God is just displayed for all its glory. But at the center of our experience of God is actually knowing his love and acceptance in Christ. And that word of the gospel that comes to us personally and individually and says, you are forgiven, you are mine. I don't want to ask you, do you know that reality in your life? It's really what Jesus said when he said, you need to be born again. You need your heart changed. And you need to accept Christ as your risen 
Lord and Saviour. Well, I'm going to transition by saying this gospel has not just come to white Western people, it's come to the people of this country, the First Nation, uh, the Indigenous people of uh, the Aborigines and the island, uh, Torres Strait Islanders. And we've got one of, uh, if I can say, their members amongst us today, Neville, who has been uh, from a long line of uh, Christian ministers uh, working out in the country of New South Wales. And come on up, Neville, and tell us a bit about the history of the gospel and revival uh, coming to the Indigenous people in Australia. Why don't you welcome him back? Great to see you here, Neville. Uh, it's worth noting, and let me just say, if I can just get the book there, Emily. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about the history of revival, but particularly the work of the gospel coming to Aborigines in the country, Stuart Piggins' book, It Is Big, has got a lot documented about it, and there's a, a, a wealth of stuff to read, which is very helpful, both the dark side and the bright side. Um, but Neville, why did the gospel take a long while to come to Aborigines here in Australia? Because it really did not happen straight away, did it? Mm, no, certainly not. Um, when Richard Johnson uh, first came to Australia as the first chaplain, three years after he had arrived, Samuel Marsden uh, joined him as the assistant minister to the colony. And it was during that time that uh, Samuel Marsden um, expressed a view uh, about Aboriginal people. And uh, he, had, he had these words to say. Um, and John Harris actually points this out in his book, One Blood. He say, and um, he says this, Marsden says this, the Aborigines are the most degraded of all human race. The time has not yet arrived for them to receive the great blessings of civilization and the knowledge of Christianity. And so, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about the negative side and the impact uh, that, that some of those negative attitudes had towards ministry amongst the First Nations people. Um, but we're not going to do that this morning. We want to talk about the positive things, what God has done Absolutely. through his people. So you've got a key role working with AEF. Yep. Just tell us about that because they've had a real sense of the gospel really impacting Aboriginal people in the country. Who is AEF? AEF is the Aboriginal Evangelical Fellowship of Australia and it was set up uh, back in 19, uh, 1970. And it was interesting how it was set up. Uh, AEF... Um, for many years, Aboriginal people were being ministered to by UAM, which is United Aborigines Missions, and the AIM, which is Aboriginal Inland Missions, and they worked in different parts of the country. And as a result of their ministry... They were run by white people, weren't they? They were run by white people. And so for many years, um, these guys were proclaiming the gospel to Aboriginal people, and as a result, many of them came to faith in Christ. And so what happened was God was working in the west and he was working in the east of the country and uh, encouraging and convicting that these guys should unite in terms of having a united force and taking the gospel to their own people. One of the issues, the other issue, we talk about the negative side of things, um, UAM and AIM weren't um, identifying leadership qualities within the Aboriginal space. So, so it was still led by white people? Still led by white people. Even today, some of those missionary organisations are still led by white people. And so when, uh, they, when the Aboriginal people challenged them, in terms of allowing them to minister within that space, um, they turned around and says, you're rocking, said to one bloke, David Kirk, who we'll introduce you to in a minute, he says, David, you're rocking the boat. And uh, David says, no, we're not, we're going to sink it. <laughs> um, for the pure reason that they wanted to be involved in ministering to their own people. So moving, uh, changing their attitude uh, from being a mission field, they wanted to be a mission force. They wanted to take the gospel themselves to their own people. 
And what happened when that happened, these guys who were being convicted on both sides of the country met together in 1962, um, or in 1970 actually, the thinking was back as far as 1962, but they met together in Port Augusta, South Australia. Um, and this is them there. They were the, uh, they, we call them our patriarchs uh, of AEF. And uh, these guys uh, had, were, were, had a conviction that they wanted to see more of our Aboriginal people saved. You might recognise one of the guys there. There's Aussie Cruz there. Um, Aussie's pretty popular and famous around the place. Aussie was uh, um, Bob, no, Gough Whitland's uh, advisor on Aboriginal affairs oh, when he was in government. And so back, at the, back in those days, they looked to AEF uh, for a, a, advice in terms of Indigenous uh, issues around the country. So they were very influential. And so um, that was those guys. So, and once these guys um, come together, they established this organisation called AEF. Then they began to move out from uh, Port Augusta and started to take the gospel. And they went to some of the most remote parts of our country. You'll see there that guy sitting down there is a guy, David Kirk, who I recently mentioned. David decided that he was going to go up into the APY lands. Um, it, could have been, it could have been true that this might have been the first contact a lot of these people had uh, with a Christian organisation. Sure, there would have been other people uh, that have moved into that area, but in terms of church, and these guys had a conviction that if the gospel was going to be uh, available for these people and they needed to take it to them, and so David and uh, a number of other federal council men moved up into that area. And it was wonderful to see the way in which uh, God was working. As a result of that... Now, just before yep. you... Where's the APY lands? APY... I should have had a map, eh? <laughs> APY lands is right up the top in, uh, of South Australia, just um, to the south of the Northern Territory border, but to the left of South Australia. So um, north, right, west of... Basically in the middle of the country. Yeah, 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 yeah. So there's, there's hardly anything there. And if you were to go to... Um, and what's APY stand for? You tell me. I said it this morning. I Come on, this will, this will test you. It uh, stands for Anangu Pidinjari Yankanjara. And so they are the tribal... That's they why are I got the, it wrong. They are the language groups of the people that live within that area. And so if you were to travel to the APY lands today, unless you knew which road to turn down, you'd get lost because it's only just a little dirt road. Now, when you were a young lad, you really saw the gospel come powerfully to your brothers and sisters Aboriginal through yeah. the AEF Big National Conference. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I reckon I was probably the same age as you when I was chasing a girl over in South Australia, which took me all the way to Port Augusta uh, to attend a national conference. I actually snagged mine. Um, <laughs> you didn't. Uh, I, was, I was successful. I got a, I got a better one, OK? <laughs> well, that's debatable. No, um, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. <laughs> right, yeah. So, um, but anyhow, we, uh, so I went to Port Augusta, same reason. I was a Christian at the time, of course. But I went over there, I met a girl at a camp. She lived in Port Augusta, so I thought, oh, I'm going to go over and catch up with her. And at the same time, there was this convention happening. And I was amazed to see the work that these guys have started and how it developed over the years. Let me show you. Uh, so this picture there, that guy in the middle there, his name's Kenyon McKenzie, and I've got a bit of a story to tell about him. Do you want me to tell that now? Or... Just briefly. It's Just too, briefly. Good, too good not to tell. Um, Kenyon McKenzie read his Bible literally, and he died about eight years ago, and he knew he was dying. He had renal failure, 
And so he said to his family, I'm going to do a last circuit. He says, then I'm going to come home and I'm going to die. He didn't want to have dialysis. He said he's over that. He just wanted to go home to be with the Lord. And anyhow, he, he had, on his circuit, he started talking about, you know, that God was going to give him a new robe, a robe of righteousness. And so he took that literally. And so um, after coming back, uh, he, he went to sleep one night. He didn't wake up. But when his family found him, he was stark naked, ready for his new robe of righteousness. <laughs> and so... When, we're, when we were up there about four years ago, um, we actually went to visit his grave. But anyhow, getting back to uh, this, um, back around 1980, um, there was a group of, uh, that's Amiwara Mission. Uh, I was the last superintendent on that mission. We actually closed it down, um, much to the disappointment of all the old home, home kids that went through there. Um, but... The convention grew. They started in a building, three, three, four hundred people, um, and there was no building in Port Augusta that was able to cater for that growth. And so, come 1980, so this they started in 1970. Come 1980, um, they had to find a new venue, and so they did. They found it at Amiwara Mission on a on a footy oval, um, and we're not talking about little square ovals of rugby league and rugby union. Uh, we're talking about AFL ground. And so there are some, it was a little, little bit of a tent city. But, uh, and it was interesting to see, a lot of people came, it was hot, you know, sitting out in the open, 47 degree heat, wind blowing, sand in your eyes, and so forth and so on. But there you go, there was two and a half thousand people there that weekend. Uh, they got in and they preached the gospel. The guys that started AEF um, realised that the only way that uh, people will come to know Christ unless, if, is, uh, is if the uh, gospel is being proclaimed. And so um, it was wonderful to be there for that convention um, and God was at work wonderfully in the lives of people. You'll see some more photos there. And you told me there's a very significant night where you had 300 people went forward. Yeah, 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 that's right. Uh, a guy, one of the uh, federal council men um, he preached a gospel, a guy by the name of Cecil Grant, simple gospel message. In one night, 300 people um, made a commitment to follow Christ. And the next day, they were all down to Spencer Golf. So if you know Port Augusta, there's a golf running through it. And they had a big day of uh, baptising people. A little bit like the Acts account, you know, where Peter preached, 3,000 souls were mm. saved, and then there was um, baptisms that took place. Very similar to that. And uh, it was just so exciting to see. So... And people were then energised. People were then energised to be able to uh, go out and proclaim the gospel. Everyone wanted to share their faith. So that's that. After, after a while, um, AEF wanted to do more in the APY lands. And so what they did is they raised money to build uh, these amphitheatres that they call platforms. And so they did that. And this is one being used. We are up there about three years ago. Mark Short, the National Director of BCA, I wanted to give him a bit of an experience of what's taking place up, the, up in the centre there. I'm going to take Bruce up one day when he gets game enough. Um, and Neville Lilly and I went up there. And uh, we were there, and uh, every night of the week uh, in the tribal areas of South Australia, they're still doing church, um, which was exciting to see. Um, what wasn't exciting was that they sang till 2 o'clock in the morning and we could hear it all. <laughs> so we, we couldn't sleep. Um, but God had wonderfully worked in the lives 
of not only the AEF council men, but, and as a result of that, there was exponential growth when it comes to proclaiming the gospel. These guys were con- had a conviction that uh, God wanted to have a relationship with our people, and so they went out and they proclaimed that. Fantastic. And interestingly, in terms of social transformation, which is also a mark of revival, they are dry communities. Yeah, all of them. Which is uh, amazing. Um, Neville, why don't you have your final word to us today? Mm-hmm. What would you want to say to people personally? My understanding of revival is that the revival begins individually. So those two guys on the road to Emmaus, um, they had a personal encounter with God. And I believe that their encounter with God, they began to understand the magnitude of God's grace and mercy um, in terms of affecting salvation. And it was, I was, I'd been a nominal Christian for probably 10 years after I'd come to faith in Christ. And it wasn't until I understood um, the grace and mercy of God and how that set me free in so many ways um, that I began to share my faith without fear or favour. I remember some years ago, and I'll finish with this story, Bruce. I remember some years ago speaking to a missionary friend of mine by the name of Max Vivian, and he asked, a, he asked this question. He says, why don't, why don't people in general share their faith? And I said, I don't know. That's a pretty hard question to answer. He said, I'll tell you why. He says, because they truly don't believe. And he says, they don't believe that hell exists. They don't believe that salvation can only be found through the cross. And so they become stagnant in terms of what they do believe. And, you know, revival can happen and will happen if God reaches down and touches the very heart and life of his people. Because the other thing you've got to remember that revival will only happen if God permits it to happen. Mm. Um, that's my take on it. So uh, God bless you. Why don't you thank Neville for coming along this morning? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the power of the gospel so that we encounter you, we experience your love and mercy. And I pray, Lord, for those here today who may not know that in their own life, that you would work powerfully in their hearts and minds to bring them to a personal experience and knowledge of you. May you revive us, Lord, so that we might rejoice in your love. And Father, we do thank you for the great work that's happening amongst our Indigenous brothers and sisters in the country. May it continue on and may they just continue to reap a great harvest for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We're going to stand and sing uh, our final song. Um, It's the collection song for the work of ministry. If you would like prayer for yourself to know God, to experience God, then please do come down at the end. We would love to pray for you. Let's stand.